My name is William Toady, retired Navy captain, former commanding officer of USS Indianapolis, former chief executive officer of Spartan Corporation. And my book is From CEO to CEO, A Practical Guide for Transitioning from Military to Industry Leadership. Today, I'm going to be talking about Chapter 3, titled Things I Wish I Knew Back When. And let's jump right into it. I opened chapter three with a story about selecting my Eagle Scout project when I was 15 years old. And the reason I tell this story is because the words that my scoutmaster said to me when I told him what I wanted to do for my Eagle project still resonate in my head. I'd selected a very challenging Eagle Scout project and what he said to me at the time was, you really want to think hard about whether you're going to do that or not because it may change your view of humanity. Those are pretty lofty words to hear when you're 15 years old. I wasn't quite sure I understood what he meant, but after I did the project, I understood clearly what he meant. And the reason I introduced that, bring that story up, is that these 12 lessons I lay out, also one could say, changed my view of humanity, at least as it pertained to the military government industry relationship. There are aspects of this relationship I did not understand when I first transitioned to industry that I wish I had understood on day one. It took me a while to learn. So I'm gonna go through a few of these lessons learned over the course of 15 years and hopefully you know, it'll help you understand what I'm talking about. The first lesson covers the fact that government and militaries around the world are populated by many selfless, caring people who want to do the right things for their military. We know that, right? We know that to be the case. Lesson two, on the other hand, unfortunately, is that lesson one is not universal. For every great civil servant in whatever country that you deal deal with, do business with, you will find others who are not exactly passionate, caring, and altruistic, who treat their position more like a jobs program than as something intended to make the warfighting forces better. And again, that was kind of eye-opening. I suspected that might be the case when I was in uniform. Boy, I saw it in spades when I got out of uniform and started dealing with some of these people as a civilian. Lesson three is one that frankly surprised me. And when I joined my first civilian company, I learned that there are people working in industry in support of the military who are just as patriotic, just as energetic, just as devoted as the best people we have in uniform. And I say that surprised me because, you know, I lived with the stereotype when I was in uniform that folks in industry were all about the paycheck, right? They were all about doing a job to make money. And when I learned that there are very talented people, in particular working in the defense industry, when they could have made a lot more money in the civil sector, but they were working in the defense industry out of patriotism because they were too old to go back in the military or weren't qualified to be in the military. They really did want to contribute in other ways, but due to other circumstances couldn't. And this was the best they could do, is contribute from their defense um, industry job. It was really heartwarming to see that. And I tell a few stories in the book about folks that I encountered that really showed that to me. Lesson four, 
on the other hand, is that unfortunately, despite what I just said about great people, patriotic people in industry, lesson four is that there are still too many people in government who look at everyone in industry as nothing but a slimy profiteer. And here's a situation that a lot of us veterans find ourselves in. We join a company and then we begin to interface with our government customers. These are people that we might have worked shoulder to shoulder with when we were in uniform. And suddenly, because we changed uniforms, our government counterparts think that we become completely different people and are out to screw the very same government that just a few months earlier we had sworn to protect with our lives. That notion among way too many government people still exists and it's both wrong-headed and counterproductive. And that was a very painful lesson that I learned. Lesson five is one that kind of astounding to me because I didn't really understand the dynamic until I changed jobs. Lesson five is that a lot of government people will assume that just because you're a civilian now, you make way more money than you might actually make. And in, and in fact, a lot of government people think that anybody in industry is making more money than any one of their counterparts on the government side. And this results all too often in inappropriate negative behavior on the part of those government people towards their industry counterpart. And in fact, because government wages are a matter of public record, it didn't take me long to learn. Many of the people, I watched the government wire brush in the civil side. And the, many of those people that were doing the wire brushing were actually making more money than the people they were wire brushed. This is particularly true in the IT sector because there are hundreds of trade schools in the country pumping out information technicians every year. And as a result of that, oftentimes an information technician with 20 years of experience will be making less money than an active duty E6, something I could not have imagined when I was in uniform. And yet, you'll see government people just assuming that these folks are just pulling in the dough. And, and it affects their behavior in a unfortunate um, and counterproductive way. Lesson six covers the fact that good leadership is a universal trait, a universal factor that pertains to both government and industry alike. I saw way too many people both active duty and civil servant, treat their contractors very poorly. And one, I tell a story in particular about an active duty army colonel who treated my collection of retired O6s and, and E9s so badly that they were threatening to quit. And when I asked him, would you treat your troops this way? He said, no, but it doesn't matter. Your contractors, good leadership doesn't apply. It's baffling that people think that way. In fact, good leadership applies everywhere. Lesson seven highlights the fact that the universe where the contractor fails, but the government succeeds, does not exist. And I say that because oftentimes the government will act like, well, huh, you know, you slimy contractor, you're late on your program. When in fact, they're late on their program as well. There's no condition where when the contractor fails, the government can possibly succeed. Lesson eight is the corollary. The universe where the government fails, but the contractor succeeds does not exist. The contractor's job is to make its customer successful. If its customer is failing, then the contractor is failing. And I talk about situations where when this happens, nothing good happens for either the government 
or the contractor. And that's why Lesson 8 is so important. Together, Lessons 7 and 8 speak to the need for teamwork between the government, contractor, and, and it's really important that folks understand that. Lesson 9 points to the fact that good government support is absolutely vital. And if it's missing, there's no way the contractor is going to succeed in their mission. Lesson 10 points to the paradox that oftentimes our international partners do the teamwork better than the American government does. Most of our international partners don't have the budgets to create Soviet-style Byzantine bureaucracies to manage these programs from the top down. I talk about a situation where I was running a multi-billion dollar program and I had a team of, of about 60 leaders on my leadership team that were being managed by 300 people in the government program office. That's 300 government folks managing my 60 leaders. Most of our international partners, I would say none of our international partners, have budgets that would allow them to staff a program like that with so many people. And because of that, they have to rely on government industry partnership a whole lot more than we do, unfortunately. Lesson 11 points to the fact that, again, our international partners often use commercial off-the-shelf systems or COTS systems better than the American government does, than the place of birth for a lot of these COTS systems. Why? Again, it's because these countries don't have the budgets to develop systems new. And I tell a story about a software program and how it was supposed to be delivered COTS, but by the time we delivered it, it had so many Byzantine arcane standards applied to it that we either had to re-engineer the whole thing completely or abandon the effort. We ended up having to abandon the effort. Most of our international partners, again, don't have the time or money necessary to do things like that. Last 12, lesson 12, talks about how some countries that you might do business with when you're in industry have essentially legalized theft. Again, I can only touch on these subjects and that's all chapter three covers that. And it, I'm gonna see you again next time, I hope in chapter four, I'm gonna describe the different kinds of companies you might consider working for. Again, I hope you find it useful. See you in chapter four. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.